Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. We hope you're enjoying the shows and if you are, there are two big favours you can do us. Leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the best ways to get The Bunker noticed. And if you're feeling generous, back us on Patreon. You'll get the show without the adverts and lots of good stuff too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, last week saw the conclusion of the penultimate round of negotiations between the UK and the EU ahead of the June deadline for extending the Brexit transition period, which itself ends in December. If a trade deal is not agreed by then, we simply leave with no deal. As the government's own impact assessments show, that would be a heavy blow to an already beleaguered economy. The talks ended with an impasse as both sides called on the other to have a radical rethink of their strategies. The UK claims it is only asking for deals that the EU already offers other countries like Canada and Japan. And the EU says if the UK wants to negotiate a deal line by line, then it will take far longer than the remaining months of 2020, not least because of the amount of time and attention COVID 19 has stolen. So who better to talk us through the latest twists and turns of transition than the MP for Leeds Central, chair of the House of Commons Committee on the Future Relationship with the European Union, and a fellow veggie, Hilary Benn. Hilary, delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Naomi. Thank you for inviting me. And do you have any uh, rescue donkeys in Leeds that listeners should know about? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disappoint. I mean, what a ridiculous, ridiculous story that was. Um, Before we get on to uh, EU stuff, what's it been like for MPs in terms of dealing with concerns from constituents about coronavirus? It must have been incredibly stressful. It's been very busy. I I was talking to a colleague uh, the other day and she said, uh, she said, I get up in the morning and I go to the emails and 12 hours later, I finish dealing with the emails and go to bed and the following morning I get up and do the same thing all over again. And what that reflects is that all MPs have had lots of questions, queries, cries for help from people who whose incomes have disappeared, their businesses is threatened with bankruptcy, they're not sure how to access universal credit or one of the support schemes that the government has put in place or they're falling between the cracks of those schemes, worries about personal protective equipment in hospitals and in care homes. Um, But also talking, we have a a regular weekly phone call between the Leeds MPs and Leeds City Council. And I must say, it's both an an extraordinary source of information about what's going on. As a city, Leeds has responded magnificently. The council, because you've got two huge, huge teaching hospitals, don't you? You've got Jimmy's and LGI's in your seat, I think. Uh, Absolutely, Uh, we have, and the way in which that the doctors and nurses and support staff have responded, but also the enormous voluntary effort. Uh, helping people who are having to isolate, people who don't have any money to buy any food, uh, community groups doing deliveries, providing moral support. And I think it's one of the untold tales of this crisis is the extent to which local communities have come together, um, supported by local councils, without whom a lot of people would find life even more difficult than it is. And what it means is that MPs are very, very, very well informed about what the problems are, what's working, what isn't working. And so when we participate 
in the virtual parliament and later on this afternoon i'll be asking a question of matt hancock when he makes his statement we do that armed with the knowledge and experience mm. of helping our constituents over the last eight weeks and it's been the same for every member of parliament and uh, we do our best to try and assist sort out problems but also to draw out of the many problems that come our way well if things need fixing you can try and solve an individual problem but if you need something much bigger than that, persuading the government to change the policy it is um, implementing, then it's our job, as always, as MPs, to speak up on behalf of our constituents and be their voice. Thank you. And I'm very, as somebody who lived in Leeds for about six or seven years, I'm very gratified to hear that that you know there's this sort of pan Leeds effort uh, to help people out. But turning now to our future relationship um, with the European Union. You chair a very diverse committee, it has to be said, you know, members ranging from no dealer Peter Bone to soft Brexiter Stephen Kinnock and anti-Brexiter Joanna Cherry. But you, as I understand it, you really try and run it by consensus. That, of course, to, you know, the average person sounds incredibly sensible and obvious, but how hard is it to do in reality? Well, it's been quite uh, challenging. Now, we have a new committee with a new name, but in the previous uh, two parliaments, I did our best, my best, as uh, all select committee chairs do, to try and reach agreement. But I think we only managed to produce one report by consensus, which was on the rights of EU citizens here in the UK and the rights of British citizens living in the rest of the EU. And the rest of the reports, we divided on some um, observations and recommendations. And if you can't uh, reach agreement, then you turn to the tried and tested democratic uh, fashion, you have a vote. And if you look at the reports that we produced, you could see how the votes fell um, when the committee came to consider a report. Now, we haven't yet produced a report as the new committee, but the reason why it's been particularly difficult is people have strong views on Brexit, on one or other side of the, of the uh, argument. But we have now left the European Union. Uh, that happened um, on in the 1st of, of January. Absolutely. So we're in a different set of circumstances now. And the question is, what should our future relationship be as a third country now that we have left? And that's what the negotiations are supposed to be addressing but I think it's fair to say thus far, they haven't been going awfully well. No. Now, last week's trade talks between the UK and EU clearly didn't make any real progress or any at all. Um, to what extent do you think that might be the lack of face-to-face -face negotiating? You know, you can't even sort of uh, caucus with your own negotiating team in sort of quiet corridors, let alone with the other side with whom you're trying to negotiate. You know, there's none of those quiet strolls through the parks in Brussels or informal coffee room chats that help oil the cogs. Is that actually a big stumbling block, do you think? I think in any negotiation, those kind of side conversations are really, really important to trying to achieve a breakthrough because there are things that people will not want to say in a formal negotiating session in any circumstance but they might sidle up to their opposite number and say look uh, what if we tried this is there any room for maneuver on uh, that issue and i think it has undoubtedly made it difficult the fact that those involved have in, in, a, in a couple of cases had coronavirus and of course the whole of the government machine 
in the UK, in the 27 member states and in the Commission has been occupied with uh, trying to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Well, that hasn't made it easy either. But there is also another problem, which is a fundamental difference of view between the two sides as to what the basis for a deal should look like. Both sides have got their red lines. On the UK side, the government says we are not going to sign up to any deal that requires us to accept EU legislation in future as binding upon us when we have no say in its determination. And we're not going to be subject to the European Court of Justice. And that's crystal clear. And on the EU side, um, Michel Barnier, on behalf of the member states, says we must at all costs preserve the integrity of the single market and the customs union. And therefore, the question is, what does a potential meeting place in the middle look like? Because now the question of our membership is gone. We've left. Uh, I would hope that all those involved would be wanting to have the closest uh, uh, economic and other relationship with our European partners who are our our biggest trading partners, our our friends, uh, and people with whom we work closely in or out of the EU on a very, very large number of questions. And there's clearly going to have to be movement if we're going to see the prospect of a deal, particularly because the government has said we are under no circumstances agreeing to an extension. And an extension only makes sense if it's for a purpose. And unless you can overcome the impasse we have at the moment, then it's hard to see how things are going to pan out to either side's benefit. Indeed. And I, I think I think it would be very reasonable to hope that, that the government was trying to get a deal. But they did confirm this weekend that some civil servants working on coronavirus have now been put back to working on those preparations for a no deal, the, the so-called no deal planning. Should this comfort us that they're planning or should it concern us that it's actually what their ambition is? Well, all governments should make preparations for all eventualities. And uh, the government did that in the last parliament with the Operation Yellowhammer work. Uh, Why did they do that? Because we know what the potential impact of a WTO Brexit would be in terms of what happens on the short straits. And a lot of uh, uncertainty for British business, trading goods, trading services. And secondly, the government has indicated that it is prepared to walk away. Now, as you know, I think a no-deal exit from the transition period, a WTO exit as it's um, known, would not be in anybody's economic interest. Why would either side want to end up with tariffs being paid on goods that flow between the EU and the UK and the UK and the EU? And the second, of course, argument at the moment is we already heading for the worst economic recession, we are told, for 300 years, why would you want to add to that by the costs and the difficulties that would be created by leaving without any agreement whatsoever? Your committee regularly takes evidence from Michael Gove. Do you get the impression that he expects the EU to blink in December and offer the UK some kind of thin deal to avoid that WTO scenario you just laid out? Well, your description of it as a thin deal is, I think, is is very important because the truth now is that what the government is seeking is much closer to a no-deal exit from the transition than was the case before. Uh, 
a sort of Canada-style deal. The really central question is, are they going to be tariffs or not? Uh, And then the government has asked for a number of other things in relation to services. But as we know, on the EU side, their big concerns are level playing field, because as they put it, if we give you access to the market on preferential terms, how do we know that you're not going to seek to undercut us, to gain a competitive advantage, to move away from EU rules that will give you an added benefit, which you then use to sell through the door that you've asked us to leave open for you. So that's the central concern. It goes back to my point about the integrity of the single market and the customs union. Then there is the question of fisheries and the overall governance of a deal, because the EU wants one deal with one governance mechanism, and the government wants a series of separate deals uh, under separate headings. Now, Michael Gove told us when he last appeared before us, he thought the chances of a deal were two to one. And it depends whether you believe that the time constraint, because the government says it will not under any circumstances agree an extension, and the impact of coronavirus will lead both sides to say, look, we've got much bigger problems to deal with here. Why don't we agree something that is sensible? Now, I happen to believe that there is a place where the two sides can meet in the middle. And it goes something like this. The red lines have been laid out, but the EU says to Britain, all right, As long as in practice you maintain alignment with EU rules because you're aligned today, then we will give you a certain degree of access. But the moment you move away from those rules in a way that we think undermines the integrity of the single market or the customs union or turns into a very unlevel, distorted playing field, then we unilaterally reserve the right to take away some of the benefits that we have given you. And then a deal like that enables the UK side to say, right, we have not signed up to abiding by the rulings of the European Court of Justice, and we have not signed up to accepting new EU laws in the years ahead that are binding on us when we've had no say in their determination. And I suppose you could describe it as, in the jargon, it's what's called an equivalence deal. Uh, And that's what the government is hoping for in financial services. The EU looks at the UK and says, well, as long as you're doing these things that you're doing at the moment, then we can give you a certain degree of access. Now, that would be, it seems to me, a pragmatic landing place in the negotiations. The the downside, of course, is that it would be not hugely stable because one side would be reserving the right to change the terms of the agreement on the basis of the decisions taken by the other side. But it's the only way that I can think of that allows you to uphold the red lines of both sets of negotiators. The assumption uh, that uh, the EU will always back down and give us what we want—you know, this nonsense that that, that we hear um, from the, the particularly the hard uh, Brexiter side—is that. Um, uh, it's it's almost based on this misguided perception that the brinkmanship worked for Johnson at the end of last year, um, except, of course, the EU didn't blink at the end of last year. It was just that, that Johnson reneged on previous assurances he'd given to the DUP. So while I understand um, the, the rationale for having some kind of 
uh, approach on equivalence with regards to standards and and regulatory things. It's much much more difficult um, when you've got the Good Friday Agreement to uphold and uh, you know protecting the integrity of that and and this border um, in the Irish Sea. You've been on visits, as I understand it, to both the north and south of Ireland. Um, you know, t- talk to me about that situation. How damaging a hard border would be. Uh, the extent to which the EU and Dublin, particularly, would be prepared to trust the British government on this? Well, the first thing I would say is that under no circumstances can there be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. I mean, whatever has divided people on Brexit, this is the one issue on which everyone has been united. And the question is, how do you achieve that? Now, you're absolutely right that uh, last autumn, what Boris Johnson did when he became Prime Minister was to accept what Theresa Ray was offered originally, because she was offered a Northern Ireland only deal. And she said no, and then came up with the UK wide one, uh, which uh, uh, Boris Johnson rejected. But he then went back to what had been previously given to the UK. And that's why the deal was concluded. Now, the question here is this. What it says is that you have to have a mechanism of ensuring that goods that are at risk, this is the key phrase in the Northern Ireland Protocol, goods that are at risk of entering the Republic of Ireland from Northern Ireland, you have to have a way of checking that they comply with the single market and customs union rules. If you're not going to do that checking on the border, which neither side is going to do because what I learned most forcefully from our visit to Northern Ireland, um, two visits to Dublin, was that it's it's in part it's about the psychology of the the peace process, because mm. what the Good Friday Agreement did, this extraordinary political achievement, was to say to people in Northern Ireland, you can be British, you can be Irish, you can be both. Yep. You can live one side of the border and go and worship at a church on the other side. You can live in the Republic and go and play squash in the sports centre in the North. And for those who have lived through the time when there were checkpoints and so on, this has been a transformation. And it was a transformation brought about by political leadership, but also in the context of our shared membership of the European Union. And that is why it is essential that we find a means of ensuring there is no return to a hard border. And that means the only place in which the checks that need to be carried out can be done is somewhere between um, GB and Northern Ireland. Now, we need to be practical about this. If a lorry from a supermarket is getting on the ferry to take uh, a load of items for its supermarkets in Northern Ireland, it's very hard to say that they are at risk of entering the Republic of Ireland and ending up in Greece. And therefore, one could have a different approach to those kind of goods as opposed to others. And the onus now is on the UK government to set out its proposal. And there's been a little bit of movement, it seems, in the last uh, couple of weeks, just a little bit. I was going to ask you how much headway has been made so far on this border in the Irish Sea. Um, The the last I'd heard was that the British government hadn't uh, yet begun enough of the preparation to satisfy uh, the EU that they were taking it seriously. Well, your, your point about trust is really well made because the risk is that 
it, there are those who said in the past, look, there's not going to be a border of any sort down the Irish Sea. Well, that unfortunately leads the EU to look at all of this and say, well, if we're not sure whether the UK will honour the legally binding obligations it freely entered into in respect of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, then how can we trust that the UK will do what it says uh, when it comes to negotiating the future relationship? And that's why I think that the UK government showing that it is taking those responsibilities to find a workable, pragmatic, sensible system for dealing with those goods that are at risk of entering the European Union, having moved from GB to Northern Ireland, would help enormously in building trust for the purposes of what I regard as a possible deal of the type that I described to you a moment ago. Because in any negotiation, you need the words on paper, but you also need to be able to look the other side in the eye and say, I think you're going to do what you promised. And you're going to look at me and think, okay, mm -hmm. he or she is going to do what they've promised. And that is the basis on which you are able to get deals. And I think that this goes a bit further as well. If if we're not seen to be upholding the Northern Irish Protocol, which is the legal, you know, that, that is set in legislation within the withdrawal agreement. The political declaration, not so much. That that was sort of all up for some kind of interpretation. But this is a an international treaty, if you like, to uphold that. Um, and of course, we're trying to also negotiate trade deals with other countries and notably the USA. Now, I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles uh, and I vividly remember the, the, the scenes that you've described. I remember, you know, armed forces being on the roads. I remember the checkpoints and having to have your bag scanned just before you even went into a supermarket. Um, and the USA was actually pretty instrumental in, in supporting the Blair government in getting that Good Friday Agreement signed. And we've had some people uh, in Congress in the US saying, you know, if you put the International Good Friday Agreement Treaty at risk, you can forget us waving through a US-UK trade deal. Do you, do you think that's, that's posturing or a very real threat to us that, that we are not seen as good negotiating partners if we don't uphold the things that we've said that we will? Well, if you sign an internationally binding legal agreement, I mean, the United Kingdom is a country whose reputation as an upholder of the law is very precious. And I cannot believe that the government would fail to do that. It's been a bit slow in uh, addressing the practical questions that will have to be answered to make this work. Secondly, the United States of America, along with others, but the, the USA played an important role in helping to move all of the parties towards an agreement in Northern Ireland. And when I said to you, there is no question under any circumstances of return to a hard border, I, I believe that to be the case. I do not think that we will see that because there is a mechanism that has been agreed through the Northern Ireland Protocol that will prevent that from happening. And in some ways, Northern Ireland will be in quite a privileged position because it will have a place in both economic systems, the EU and uh, the United uh, Kingdom. And once uh, the deal is implemented and there is stability, uh, people may look at Northern Ireland and say, well, that's a jolly good place to invest because of the position that it uh, finds itself in. That's, I think, the first issue. The second is a trade deal with the United States of America is going to be very 
difficult because if you think of American agriculture, I find it hard to believe that the USA won't want access for its agricultural products. And that um, brings you right up against our food standards and animal welfare standards here in the UK. And there's a lot of concern about that. And thirdly, um, the president of the United States of America is, I would say, in many ways, a protectionist. And the government seems to be putting an enormous amount of store by a trade deal with the United mm. States of America. And even with the USA, on average, it takes uh, about four years for a trade deal to be negotiated. And it's very important to bear that in mind. And even if there is one, the government's own economic assessment from last year said, well, it will give us a bit of a benefit, but it is outweighed a number of times over by the loss of potential GDP that will come from leaving the single market in the customs union. And especially if we have a WTO relationship with the EU after the 1st of January. And it is somewhat ironic that the government says on the assessment of the economic impact of leaving with no deal with the EU, it says, well, you shouldn't really pay too much attention to that because you know that's just one assessment. Who can know? And yet, when you look at the document they produced earlier this year on a trade deal with America, there were about 60 pages of assessment of the economic impact. Mm. And uh, you can't have it both ways. Either you think uh, uh, there is going to be an economic impact which you can rely upon, or you don't. And I, I, um, uh, I put it to Michael Gove when he last appeared that that was a pretty clear contradiction in the government's position. And the final point I would make is, what are the prospects for trade agreements in a post-coronavirus world? Indeed. And I don't think that we yet fully understand the answer to that question. No. And um, I mean, you've, you've been very clear on the, the issue of extension, I think, um, certainly very clear about what you see the government's uh, total intransigence on that. But, you know, the truth is coronavirus has stolen many months worth of not just negotiating time, but business preparedness time and public sector preparedness time. You know, the, the, the transition was designed not just for us to try and negotiate a new trade deal, but also to give people time to prepare. And um, on, on Sophie Ridge, uh, on Sunday, your colleague Rachel Reeves signalled that the Labour Party might formally back a request to extend the transition period. Tell me, do you, do you think it's a question of when, not if? Well, um, what I understood uh, Rachel to have said is, look, the end of the year deadline is extremely tight. And the, the most important thing that we're saying to the government at the moment is, well, you chose that deadline. You say you're not going to extend. So where's this oven-ready deal that you promised the country? Where is it? And secondly, I would say that there's no point in an extension or asking for an extension if there isn't the prospect of a deal. And I, I, I mean, I ha myself haven't called for an extension to the transition period because I think we need to see how the talks go. And in the end, if there were to be one, it would be the government that would have to reach that conclusion. And it ought to be a decision either way on the basis of how the talks look. Uh, is there a possibility of progress or not? And we're not at, we're not at that stage yet.
Hilary, thank you so much for joining us on the Bunker Daily. On the regular shows, we always ask our guests which book or TV or movie they're really enjoying as a mental escape route from politics. When you need to switch off, what are you enjoying right now? Now, I have to confess at this point that I am now into series nine of Spooks. Oh, it's so good. I've rewatched the whole thing too. <laughs> well, you've been watching it at a faster rate than I have. Um, now, people might think that terrorist threats and disasters and all of that is not quite how <laughs> would, one would like Excellent to wa- yeah, wind down from uh, coronavirus, but it is, uh, it is ex- extraordinary television. And it it reminds us that all of these things that we enjoy because of the skill of writers, producers and actors, I, I was on a a Zoom call on Friday with um, the theatre companies, the opera, the ballet in Leeds uh, with my colleague Rachel Reeves. And mm. just hearing those people who've devoted their entire lives to bringing performers and actors together to create wonderful uh, plays and dance and operas, which we can enjoy – and the sheer difficulty of trying to do that in a socially distanced way, even if we get to the point of uh, uh, easing the lockdown, it's very, very uh, hard for them. But they are creative and they're trying to find other ways of continuing to entertain us and lift our spirits, which we do need as we're dealing we with this very, very difficult time in the lives of uh, many people which have taken such a huge toll. Um, Indeed. Anyway, anything, anything that can cheer us up, and I'm totally with you there on the BBC iPlayer version of all ten series of Spooks. It's it's really wonderful escapism. Good. Thank you so much for joining us, and keep holding the government to account. Listeners, we'll be back tomorrow with the full length Bunker podcast. Don't forget to check out Patreon Bunker podcast to support us, and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.